Greetings, and welcome back to ZatCast, the official podcast of local government nerdery of all shapes and sizes. I'm Chad, that's Patrick, and we've got uh, some really interesting topics to talk about today. We're going to talk about uh, a bill in the state legislature that may or may not be functionally eliminating home rule. Uh, We're going to talk about how the recent property tax um, appraisal caps and revenue cap rules may be causing some issues with your economic development and how you need to account for that. And then we're going to hit on some 15-minute cities. So a lot to talk about. Let's go ahead and dive in. But first, Patrick, how are you doing? I'm good, brother. How are you? I'm doing great as always. always. Life is just busy and crazy and chaotic. Days fly by, uh, but you know. What else are you going to do? Yeah, it's fine. You have a few more kids than I do. So your your days are a little more hectic than mine. But just with two on my end, it's uh, it, it can be quite a bit and a lot. But yeah, uh, absolutely. Days are flying by. Spring is spring is in the air. You can, you know, spring break starts next week. So we're, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure everybody's about to jump on the road and start having some fun there. Uh, and last night I got to hang out with uh, our old friend, Brittany Huff. Oh, yeah. As she hosted the... Uh, UMAN Exec Connect. I got to talk to a bunch of up and coming uh, public administrators, which was really fun, and and really kind of dig into that life. Had a lot of family questions actually at that. Like, how do you how do you handle life family balance? And so, um, and got a lot of a uh, lot of praise for our parental leave uh, stances when we were city managers about the uh, six weeks of parental leave that we put in place. So. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, we pretty, put in place after we had all of our kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We did have our kids and then we're like, you know what? Maybe we need some parental leave, uh, here to help some people out. So, um, uh, you know, pretty cool process. Got to talk about that and, uh, got to sit with, uh, Paulette Hartman, the assistant city manager in North Richmond Hills, big, uh, big time city manager in the state of Texas and, uh, has really worked in small cities and, uh, mid-sized large cities as well. Uh, and hear Paulette and how she does life, uh, family life balance. That was pretty cool. Uh, she's got a, a really good setup and a, uh, a husband who's a, who also is a high performer and kind of listening to her talk about having two high performers in a marriage and how they do it. Uh, I know you, you are like that as well. Your, your wife is an extremely high performer and you guys make it work with all of your children. Uh, so, which is, you know, it gets cheaper by the dozen in your house at some point. If you count the dogs. Yeah, honestly, the only reason the only reason that we make it work is because she's a high performer and can coordinate everything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just along for the ride for the most part. Absolutely. So, all right, man, let's let's get into our first topic. So, uh, there's a Texas Monthly article. We will uh, link in our show notes, but there's a Texas Monthly article. Uh, can you give me the title of that article, Jen? Yes, it is How the Texas GOP Became the Party of Big Government. Michael Hardy, I think it was published yesterday. Yeah. So, you know, really goes into kind of um, all of the different things that the state has done uh, to basically create larger state government and take away from the more localized form of of government that we have in Texas at the home rule city level. thought it was a really interesting article. I thought it, I thought the the discussion about the dichotomy between um, the different types of conservatives that we used to have in the state of Texas that kind of took control of Texas. So like you're uh, like your governor Bushes of the world, right? Uh, and how they handled economic development and how they handled, um, you know, being a business friendly climate and really pushing things down to the locals and the locals having a lot of influence on that process. Um, and then, you know, Governor Abbott 
in in his couple of terms in office and the differences that we're seeing from this Texas legislature now versus the Texas legislature we saw during Bush's terms and how the ledge is really kind of trying to incorporate things at the state level uh, through, you know, mandates, uh, you know, there are a couple of examples given some of them better than others. Um, you know, but talking about like ride sharing and rules on ride sharing and, uh, you know, different, different rules on like development shot clocks and, and things like that, that have been put in place. And then obviously like the taxation rules that we've seen, but also it goes into another bill that has been filed that, uh, it, it doesn't directly say that it's going to take away home rule status from cities, but it basically would take away the ability from it for a city. It's a, a bill filed by uh, Dustin Burroughs out of the Lubbock area, but it is a bill that would take away a uh, city's ability to regulate specific areas that the state would regulate. That's basically the way that they formulated it. So, you know, like health and human services and uh, different aspects of state government, like cities would be preempted from, from doing anything or forming their own ordinances there. Um, you know, r- little refresher for folks who aren't like super city savvy uh, on issues like this for kind of our private sector folks. There are mainly two different types of cities in the state of Texas. I mean, you can get into the different like type A, B, Cs. Th- that's a little different, but uh, you you have general law municipalities, which basically can only do the things that they are statutory allowed to do in the state of Texas. And once you reach 5,000 in population under state code, you can become what's called a home rule city where you pass your own charter and you kind of become your own governmental authority that can do anything uh, that you would like to do that is not preempted already by state statute. So it's kind of, you know, how that goes. So I, really I think that it's explicitly prohibited. Explicitly, yeah, explicitly prohibited uh, by the state. Uh, so obviously a home rule city has the ability to do a lot more and a lot more things. And they typically, because they're a larger city, you know, they perform some roles that general law municipalities don't really uh, perform. So um it, it was a it, it's a very interesting read. I'm curious what your take is on that, Chad, on kind of you know looking through and seeing where the state is going. Like what what where do you where do you see things? So first of all, this is House Bill 2127. There's a companion bill, Senate Bill 814. Essentially, this is preempting anything that the state is is already doing for agriculture, finance, insurance, labor, natural resources, and occupations, like all those codes. Anything that the state has already done. Like cities can no longer have any any role in in regulating those. Um, interestingly, it explicitly <laughs> removes uh, official and qualified immunity. Which, whatever. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I am a not a fan of qualified immunity, so you know that part's fine. But it's interesting that this is what the state decides to remove qualified immunity for. But the argument for this is that there's over time develops a patchwork of regulations from city to city. And, you know, it makes it really hard to do business because you have to figure out what the city laws are and ordinances are, which, okay, like that's an argument, right? But that's also an argument to get rid of our entire federal system. Yeah. Which none of these lawmakers would do, right? Or would advocate for. I mean, could you imagine, and this is an argument that we've made from our second podcast episode where we also talked about Dustin Burroughs and the infamous Bonin tapes. Yep. The same people making these arguments would never allow that argument to be made from Washington. Correct. So, yeah, maybe there is a patchwork of certain regulations when it comes to land use, uh, when it comes to uh, you know gas drilling, when it comes to red light cameras and various other things. 
But the whole point of self-government and especially local government is to try different things and see what works and see how you can adopt it to your specific environment. And what the state has continually done over the past, especially the past 10 years, is just try to find ways to to prevent any of that kind of experimentation and just impose what they think is good from, from the legislature level down. The worst part about this is that because of where demographics have shifted in the state, and the article t- kind of talks about this, about how big cities used to be the you know Republican cities, mm-hmm. and now big cities are not Republican cities. There's only one big city that is still kind of Republican, barely, and that's Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the there's this big divide between rural and urban legislative interests, which is really kind of kind of funny because if the primary base is kind of suburban and kind of rural for for most of the Republican legislature legislate legislators versus urban for the Democratic legislators, then are they like do they really even these rules don't really even affect them? Correct. <laughs> you know, yeah. like or or most of their constituents, right? Because they're not living in Denton where the article starts off with the the fracking um fracking restrictions. So so it's kind of it's kind of a culture war question, which is always frustrating to me. But at the end of the day, I mean, the argument that this patchwork is unacceptable is an argument to get rid of federalism writ large. And, and that's just not something that you would ever hear these people do. So, so it strikes me as hollow and, and it comes across as sort of uh, an argument of convenience. And on top of that, I mean, I just think it's a, I think it's a bad idea. I think that cities where a decision can be made as close as possible to the people, that's where it should be made. And many of these types of decisions that this preemption bill will prevent are decisions that should be made at the municipal level. Yeah. You know, there, there is an argument to be made that, that some things, and we've talked about this with housing and with land use, right? Some things, there may be enough of a compelling state interest to at least make a case that certain zoning rules or land use rules or housing development rules or things like that. Um, should have some state intervention, but this is just across the board. You can't do anything that we don't that we don't allow. And 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 it, there's an argument that this is essentially not just limiting, but potentially setting us on the course to get rid of home rule. Yeah, and, and which I think it, is kind of scary. Well, it, I think it's a, a pretty scary conversation. Uh, you know, in two two things on this topic. One, I think if you're a Republican in the state of Texas. And you're looking at this and you're listening to this and, and I'm I'm trying to tell you why you shouldn't do this. The first thing I would say to you is, hey, are you going to like this when Democrats are elected and they start telling you what your small town in rural Texas can't do like that? You know, to think that Texas is going to be a Republican majority state forever is just it's a foolish thought. Like it's just it's at some point you're going to have a statewide elected office that's going to be won by a Democrat, right? And if that statewide elected office ends up being governor or lieutenant governor in the state of Texas, those are both very powerful positions to control legislative especially agenda, governor. especially lieutenant governor under our constitution. It's just a very different state. Uh, you know, we're taught in Texas history that lieutenant governor is actually a more powerful position in Texas than uh, than governor. And it, it kind of is other than the veto pen, except the lieutenant governor really has the ultimate veto pen because he could just not calendar an item, right? It never, It doesn't even get through the Senate without without the lieutenant governor. So um 
you know, I think that's the first point I'd make is, you know, hey, be careful what you wish for here. Like, I know that you're, you know, battling this cultural warfare and you're trying to show that these mean old little cities are, you know, a bunch of crazy people. Um, but it, it's it's really not the case long term when you when you look at it that this would be a wise decision. Um, the the second thing is is that when we look at our the makeup of our legislature and we look at what it's done to the people who would eventually become legislators, city council members, right? Specifically, people who start at the smaller level and work their way up, um, we really have kind of killed off our civic like farm system in Texas, right? Like it, the the divide between a conservative city council member and a conservative legislature is is a is a river now. Like it it's really, really wide. And because of that, we aren't putting a lot of locally elected officials in the legislature, which if you look at when the Republicans took over the state of Texas, they were taken over by a lot of locally elected council members, right? That ran for statewide office as Republicans for the first time. So there's a lot of history there that's important to look at. And um, I just, you know, this ability to look at it, you know, the, the keeping up with the Ron DeSantis's of the world. I mean, not just this bill, but if like you look at the like the Austin, you know, turn Austin into a state entity bill that that's been proposed, where they basically want to take away the right of Austin to be a city. Look, I I'm an Aggie, right? I think Austin is is weird as can be, right? I know you went to that school for a little while, and it's never sent your kid there. It's not a great place, but um, you know, and I, I know it's it's crazy different, but. It's it's like we're trying to keep up with Ron DeSantis in Florida and and have like a little Disney argument here in Texas, right? Like we just don't like what Austin's going to do, so we're going to create some like state controlled special legislative district that's unelected and appointed, right? If you look at what what's happening in Florida, that's that's what happened to the Reedy Creek district there that controls the Disneyland resort areas, right? They basically took away this board uh, and now they have this unelected board that's appointed by the governor's office. And it's just, it's, it just seems so undemocratic in, in the way that we do it. And so um, that's going to be the thing when you, when you start to, you know, talk about the don't tread on me flag, the don't tread on me flag in Texas is it's going to come to a local city near you. Right. Uh, And it's not going to be, a tea party revolution from the residents that are in that city. It's going to be a revolution from that. The people in that city towards the state, because things are going to get built and things are going to happen that people do not like, and they're going to blame those state legislators for that. Right. Um, Yeah. And the money and the population are in the places that are going to be most affected by these things. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Demographics are not always going to be, it's not a straight line trend. We're just like maintains where we are today. Yes. There's a thousand people a day coming to Texas, and many of them are not conservative Republicans. That's that is correct. Right? Yeah, uh, I mean, as look, we don't get into politics. We try as much as possible not to. But you know, your comment about if you're a Republican listening to this, just think about you know what if when eventually the tides do get turned. I think that's an important. It shouldn't be the only thing that you think about when you look at a policy preference, but there's this, uh, this is concept of a veil of veil of ignorance, I think is what it is where, you know, you imagine that you are some sort of amorphous blob about to be born and you have no idea who you're going to be born to or where, or if you're going to have, you know, disabilities or if you're going to be this or that or whatever, like you have no idea what your life is going to be like with that understanding, what would be the most fair policy 
you know, given that you don't know how it will actually impact you. Yeah. It's not the best framework for, for well, public mean, policy, t- yeah. but it's, it's instructive to think about, you know, at some point you're not going to be in charge because things ebb and flow. Correct. Uh, and so at that point, then, you know, what are you going to do? But I think the most important thing is that for the benefit of the state as a whole, our Republican party should stop abandoning the city and start trying to take their ideas to the city. Yeah. Instead of just saying, no, you can't do anything. Right. Like, run for local office in these cities and bring your ideas there. Correct. As opposed to just sitting off in, you know, in the legislative chambers and saying, stop doing anything I disagree with. Yeah. So like, I, is there a better way to do it than do it? Well, I, you know, I think, I, I think a good warning here, I mean, to, to talk to our conservative friends, right. To talk to even conservatives and libertarians in general, let's look at the Trump presidency for a minute. And I'm not getting hyper-political here. I'm just, I'm using a, a real example. Uh, so don't, don't turn us off yet. <laughs> don't, when you look at the Trump presidency, Trump couldn't get a lot of things done legislatively. Right. And so more than any president that we have seen probably in our history, he used the power of the executive order to dictate federal policy instead of using legislative ability to dictate federal policy. A lot of those things have been overturned by courts, overturned by the legislature, you know, overturned by a, a lot of different areas in, in the federal government. But he used that. So what was the repercussions for that? We get a Democrat elected and President Biden uses the power of the pen to justify, you know, getting rid of student loan debt across the board. Not for people who got screwed over in a public service program. A lot of our listeners were in that boat. I was. Um, but to just say, hey, we're going to forgive $10,000 of everybody's loan and $20,000 for anybody who had a Pell Grant, right? And to do it by pen and to really have not a lot of justification in the federal statute to be able to do it. But that empowerment came from the fact that we have historically now had president after president after president who has increased the power of the executive branch through executive orders. Uh, and it didn't start at Trump. It, it it started well before that. But we're seeing this trend um, go to avoidance of the legislature. And we have to be very careful with that at the state level. Like if we start dictating things from the state level – um, we've got to be very careful of what that impact is going to be when there's a flip in the party. And and conservatives and, and libertarians alike are very upset about the student loan program uh, issues. And my point is, is that that empowerment was felt by previous administrations that had an R next to their name, right? So we just be careful what you wish for and also understand that in government, precedent is everything. So if it's been done and done successfully, somebody's going to figure out a way to stretch that rubber band just a little bit further, right? Our city attorney used to say, you would always just take that envelope and slide it just a little further, right? Um, and so, uh, and, and joke around, you actually made a comment on LinkedIn the other day that I thought was pretty funny, where it was like uh, somebody was talking about working in a city and you know working with somebody else in a city and how beneficial it was for them to work together. And, and you said, everybody needs somebody who says no in their life. And you were my no, Right. Uh, cause I, I, I just, I had no boundary. I would always push. I would always, I was, that was constant. I would always push and it, it would wear some of my employees out for sure. But you were always the person that would come in and, and shut the door that we actually didn't have on our offices and talk to me and say, Hey, you can't do that. And this is why you can't do that. It's an, it's a no. Right. Um, and so, and you need that. And like, I feel like the legislature needs 
um, like a Rick Perry or a George Bush or somebody to just talk to them reasonably and say, guys, be very careful at what you're doing here, right? Um, they need a no person. They really need somebody to say no. So, yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, end of home rule, possibly. That's fun <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Um, let's talk about some uh, some other bills that have recently been passed that also have unintended consequences. This is something that's been coming, uh, it's come up with us uh, several times recently, actually, in some of our consulting work. And so I'll let you introduce it. Um, but because it's come up so frequently over the past month or two, uh, we thought it might be worth stepping outside of the consulting sort of billable hour <laughs> uh, yeah. sort of framework and just just talk about it publicly. So Patrick, why don't you go ahead and kind of introduce this one? Yeah. So uh, last legislative session, um, House Bill 2 was approved in the last legislative session that basically changed- the, Senate Bill 2. Sorry, Senate Bill 2, that changed um, how- Taxation in the state of Texas is collected by the localities. It changed. It used to be we had an 8% rollback rate. So if a city went up and grabbed more than 8% of revenue uh, from existing revenue sources uh, in the property tax side, then they would have to you know, automatically uh, – or they could be rolled no. back by residents yes. if they petitioned for it. Now, if they go above 3.5%, uh, it calls for an automatic election that occurs. And it also kind of changed the way that some of the values come back into the city's general fund. And it's the – the impacts that nobody has thought about of Senate Bill 2 and how that has impacted economic development and incentive agreements. So a lot of cities have used uh, TERS instruments, uh, TIF instruments, tax increment financing, uh, or tax increment reinvestment zones uh, for years. Uh, and have used that tool to fund economic development projects and to fund infrastructure projects within the area of development, right? Within the boundaries of that uh, that new development area. Uh, and we've seen it used in both commercial, industrial, residential. It's kind of used all across the board. We've seen it. It was originally a tool that was built for brownfield re redevelopment, but we see it used a ton in greenfield development uh, to kind of justify the development itself internally and then to pay for the infrastructure of that development over time. Uh, now, I will say, asterisks, we never see in those TERS uh, calculations a depreciation cost of the that asset. We just pay back the asset over 30 years, but forget after 30 years, we may actually have to replace part of those assets, right? So um, in, important just to say out loud. But what we've seen, and you actually saw the city of Dallas is, is trying to kind of negate uh, the impact of this, but because of Senate Bill 2 and the 3.5% cap, TERS value by a lot of appraisal districts, uh, and, and we haven't gotten a lot of, of uh, explanation on it, but their interpretation of Senate Bill 2 is, is that TERS value comes in as old, um, old, old, old uh, value, right? So uh, what that means is, is that uh, instead of when the TERS rolls off the books and you're no longer making a TERS contribution to a TERS fund and that money rolls into your general fund, instead of being shown as new value where you don't have a tax cap of 3.5%, it's shown as old value that impacts your 3.5%, which you know obviously if this TERS is large enough and it's you know a lot of these things come in and they've got billions of dollars of value attached to them. If they're if they're large enough, then it's going to put you in a situation where you're going to hit your three and a half percent, and then you're going to need to compress your tax rate significantly to handle that. Even though you may have modeled the fact that that TERS money was going to come in, and it was going to support some type of city service twenty or thirty years ago, you you now have to really work within that. So we've seen some cities do some things to 
account for that. Some of it is a little sketch. Uh, some of it is uh, is legal. Uh, we've seen the extension of TERS agreements uh, to benefit that direct development, which you know has, in my opinion, has some kind of uh, taxpayer equality issues to it. Um, because you know it's it's only going back into that TERS to directly benefit that TERS, even though it, it is outside the original term and use of the TERS. But the only way they can keep it from compressing the citywide tax rate is uh, is is basically to to keep the TERS alive and to figure out other funding sources within that TERS for economic development incentives and so forth and so on. Road reconstruction, they just kind of recycle the same money again, right, within that area. So that's one way to kind of avoid a compression. Um, you know, we've also seen some some things like uh, the city of Dallas has announced that they're going to take their TERS funding and they're going to put it into what they call a transportation fund. Um, and that way it doesn't come into their general fund and they can try to work to avoid the compression that way. And they can direct expenses specifically for transportation. I think that's a little statutorily sketchy. I'm not an attorney. But the TERS uh, statute is pretty specific on where and how and the boundary in which you use that funding. So you would have to really kind of justify every dollar that gets spent uh, to a geographic area or to something that directly supports the TERS. Um, And so that could be difficult for Dallas to do if they're just going to put it in one transportation fund and then go spend it on roads and things like that and and try to – I mean, it, it really is just a straight avoidance of putting it in your general fund so that it doesn't compress tax rate. Um. So those are kind of the the different areas that we're seeing people that are dealing with existing TERS. Because if you've already got a TERS out there, there's very little you can do to fix the existing problem, right? But on new agreements, we've had a lot of conversations with municipalities that are looking at bringing on new TERS agreements because developers love them as a financing instrument, right? It allows them to go out and get debt, finance public infrastructure. They get an increment to pay for that debt, and it just kind of works for both parties. And so TERS agreements have been fairly successful on large-scale developments. But on new developments, uh, you know, if a city takes that TERS and does it the typical way, then they're going to see that compression uh, on the back end of the TERS agreement. So, you know, let's say they bring in a TERS. Can, can we clarify exactly how that, that math works? Yeah. So uh, on a TERS, you have a base value, which is basically your existing value. If it's brownfield, it's the existing value of all of the dirt and the improvements. If it's green value, if it's green uh, development, then or greenfield development, then it's uh, it's just land. It's just land, right? That's your base value. Right. Yeah. So say that your base value is a hundred million dollars. Correct. So base value right. is a hundred million. The idea is you're gonna you're gonna put investments into this area to stimulate redevelopment or new development, and right. then anything any growth above that is going to be reinvested back into that district, right? So say at the end of the tours, it's now worth a billion dollars. Okay, so you've got 900 million of incremental Correct. value. That's going to come onto your Correct. books as existing values, right? Because that in 20 years or 30 in your years, city, whatever right? the TERS term yeah. is, yeah. Because when you look at the Noni revenue, it's looking at same over same, same properties over same properties, right? So the, the base value has already been factored into your Noni revenue. But it's the same property, so now the increment is going to be added in, and you're going to go from a hundred million to a billion. That's a you know nine hundred percent increase or whatever, yeah. or a thousand percent increase, um, and that's going to be factored into your three and a half percent. It is, and because appraisal districts, right. so that's yeah. why you talk about that's going to start compressing 
your, your it's going to start compressing your tax rate uh, to stay below the three and a half percent, or you're going to go to your voters, which we haven't seen anybody really do. Right? Uh, you got to go to your voters and convince them that they're they're really not getting a tax increase, even though they're, you know, like you you've got to like do the the conversation, which is really tough to have at a ballot box, right? Because um, because the people in that district have already been paying the tax. That's correct. Right? Yeah, it's just been it's just been siphoned off to go back into that district. So Correct. really, there's no additional increase in taxes paid. It's just the way that the calculations work. It looks like you're generating a significant amount of new tax revenue. It looks like yeah. you had a thousand percent increase in the values in that in that area. Correct. And and so what what we have seen in communities that have like significant finance departments, right? Like larger communities that have multiple CPAs that work in their finance department and and multiple different budget and analysis people that are looking at things like this on a on a constant basis is is we have seen them change the way they do tours districts. So that the typical way that a tours is done is just like you said, there's a base value, then there's an increment value, and there's a percentage participation in the increment value for the revenue that the city generates that goes back into the tours fund. Sometimes it's 100%, sometimes it's 80, sometimes it's 50. It's all over the board based on what the city's uh, tours policy is. Um, you know, and then you get participation from a county, you get participation from a college district. Everybody can kind of chip in on that TERS and participate at some level. So in Tarrant County, for example, Tarrant County has a, a, a TERS uh, rule that if you hit a certain value, a certain number of jobs, then they participate at 50%, right? Which is how Tarrant County operates. And then for like supersized projects, they participate at like 70%. And that's the highest mark they do. Whereas a lot of cities will participate up to like 85 or 90% within those TERS districts. So, but Way one is you just go through and uh, you do it like an old TERS district. And after 20 or 30 years of all the TERS debt getting paid off and the TERS basically being closed out, that money then comes back into your general fund. Uh, and under today's rules, that would compress that tax rate. The other way that we've seen these cities that have all these very qualified individuals look at this is, is they build a TERS, but they don't do the reimbursement through uh, directly to the TERS fund. They actually bring all of the funds into the general fund and then they do a 380 reimbursement back to the TERS fund. Um, what that means is, is that the 380 or when you when you bring that money in, all of that new value hits the general fund in the year in which the improvement is done, right? And the city gets the benefit of the larger pool of money, even though they're using a chapter 380 agreement to send that money back to the TERS fund, right? But instead of doing it as a... Um, a rebate prior to hitting the general fund, they do it as a rebate after hitting the general fund, uh, which you would need to take into account in like any of your like general fund reserve policies and things like that, right? Uh, and and how you you do that. But what that does is is let's say it's let's say it's a two point four billion dollar improvement tours because we ran this number for a city the other day and that's the number I I have on the top of my head. If you're able to go up three. 0.49% on your tax rate and your tax rate has an additional $2.4 billion of improvement value, even though you're not getting that money, you're sending it to a TERS fund, you're leaving the ability to go capture almost $900,000 in additional revenue from existing tax base by not bringing that in through a Chapter 380 agreement. If you do it through a typical TERS, you would not. And it's basically just it's three and a half percent of a bigger pie in your general fund, right? Than it would be if it was directed straight to a TERS fund. Does that make sense, Chad? 
So essentially what, what happens though, in that circumstance is that you're getting the compression as you go, as opposed to all at once. Well, you're not because new value doesn't compress. Well, if it's new development, yes. Correct. So you're bringing um, new development in where it doesn't have an impact on your compression. And in the future year that- Well, but let's say 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 you add a billion dollar you know warehouse or something uh-huh. or, or, or data processing center. So the first year that's not going to compress, but then as that as the value changes over time, it would, but you're not getting the benefit of the actual revenue to the general fund. Correct. Right. But whatever that initial new development revenue is, what you're saying is by doing the 380, you're not going to get hit as if that's existing value. Correct. At the end of the TERS agreement, you're not going to get yeah. hit with a bunch of compression. So when- theoretically, even though it would still compress, mm-hmm. it's going to be significantly less compression over time. And you'll get to do it incrementally. Yeah, it won't It won't compress in year two. So like- uh, no, I, no, no, no. Yeah. Well, say, say you have a billion dollar development that's a new new development that would mm-hmm. otherwise be in the TERS district, right? So you'd only have the base. Correct. In 20 years, you're going to get hit with all of that as existing value. But if it's new development and you're 380 it, it back, right? It's hitting your general fund as new, uh, as new value. So you're not going to get compressed on that. Correct. But let's say that it increases to, you know, 1.05 billion, right? For the next year. That's the value. I got you. Okay. That increment, yes. you're going to get compressed on. That percent and a half right? additional, yeah. Yeah. Yep. But that's still significantly less than you would be hit all at once when the TERS expires. When you're talking about large-scale commercial um, and industrial development, industrial the likelihood like of that, yeah. a 5% increase per year is like slim to none, uh, yeah. right? Uh, I'm just yeah. trying to use round numbers that weren't it, too outrageous. Or if you're, like, yeah, if you're but, talking about yeah. like data center development, um, I mean- It's, it's not going to change that much at all. Yeah, th- this this may be the uh, greatest amount of, of free advice we give on this podcast. <laughs> Uh, but like a, a data center development, let's say they put in a $4 billion data center development, right? That data center development is going to is gonna depreciate its overall value within like 15 years, right? Whatever their appreciation schedule is. So the, you you are going to have depreciation that occurs. Now, the great thing about data centers rather than manufacturers, right, is they typically replace uh, their personal property their interior, personal equipment. right? Yeah. And so it kind of it, it, it goes down and then it kind of pops back up, but it's new value pop. Right when it hits, so it doesn't really hit your compression line. Um, whereas on like a manufacturer, like you bring in an automotive manufacturer, they're going to depreciate a lot of that equipment on the floor. So they build like a billion dollar building and they have three billion dollars of equipment. Over the next twenty years, they depreciate down, and then they usually uh, you. So you have declining value for twenty years, and then like year twenty, they retool, and then it starts over again, right? Uh, and then they ask for new abatements and and all. This. It's just it's yeah, the constant. replacement cycle on yeah. computers is much quicker. Correct. So. Um, so like the Sherman development where you have TI and a couple other uh, like uh, WorldCom, I think, or some of the other players that are out there that are building chip plants, like chip plants depreciate in like seven years, right? Like they have a really fast depreciation schedule. Uh, so there's just, you know, those things. Um, this is where we make the comment. Uh, everybody has an economic development consultant, right? Like they're they're out there. We recommend like five or six of them to work with you to go negotiate with people, where a lot of our cities um, need us specifically is you need a fiscal economic development consultant. You need somebody who, when you're dealing with a a a, a deal of that size or you're dealing with a development that is uh, of grand scale, the way that you structure your development agreement, the way that your, your development consultant structures that agreement could cost you 
you know, in the case of the city we talked to earlier this week, could cost you the ability to capture $900,000 a year in revenue over the next 30 years, right? So paying somebody on the fiscal analysis side, 15 to $20,000 could save you $900,000 a year and, you know, basically $25 million over the next 30 years, right? It, so it's, you just, the, the mechanics of it are, are, are super complicated. Um, and, but you kind of need somebody who deals in that. And that's the thing about cities from an economic development standpoint. Um, those are big one-off deals. Like there are very few cities in the state of Texas who do a lot of those deals all the time. And so, you know, so there's not a lot of folks out there that are qualified to, to kind of have those discussions and those fiscal impact discussions. Right. Whereas we're out there working for 200 plus cities and we get to see all of the different combinations that work and don't work and that type of stuff. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a benefit that we get, uh, to kind of be at 30,000 feet and kind of see what everybody's doing. Uh, it can be, it can be really beneficial. And we like to pass that on to our other clients because the city that I had a conversation with the other day, bringing on $2.4 billion of value, they're not very big. I mean, size-wise, like they're less than, I think they're less than 10,000 in population. Right. And they're doing a huge master plan development in their community. And and like that little decision could be super costly for them. Right. Uh, whereas like if you're a Fort Worth or a Dallas or a Houston, if you make a little mistake on that, it may not be as big of a deal. Right. Um, but it's it's extremely important to look at and and to know how those dollars are going to impact you both today and 20 years from now. Yeah. I think at the end of the day. Issues like this really emphasize the need to have simple rules for these complex systems because there's always going to be some kind of weird edge case yep. that can just ensnare you. Um, and so the simpler that we can make the framework in which we operate, <clears throat> legislature, the less likely we're going to run into these kinds of problems and, and, and these kind of gotchas. So. Uh, and that's also true at the local level too, right? right. You know, the, the more complex that you try to make your rules to account for all of these different possible scenarios, the more brittle things are going to be, yeah. right? So instead of trying to account for every possible scenario, try to make things simple, try to make your framework for operating and developing simple so that you can be a little bit more resilient mm -hmm. over time. Speaking of resiliency... We'll jump over to our final topic. And I'm not really sure, Patrick, how I want to approach this. I think... Well, first explain what a 15-minute city I know, is. So, yeah, so, yeah. So so if you'll recall, uh, we we spoke with uh, Milford John Williams from Lake Jackson about bicycling. And mm -hmm. towards the end of that conversation, uh, he mentioned the 15-minute the city concept. So we talked about it just a little bit. Um, but the basic idea... It's sort of this urban planning concept. It's very similar to like the urban village. Um, in truth, a 15-minute city is basically just how we used to build cities before about 100 years ago. And the idea is that you can you can handle and and engage in the majority of daily needs that you have within about a 15-minute walk or bike ride. You know, things are pretty close to you. And so... A few years ago, the uh, the mayor, mayor of Paris, France, made this part of her campaign. She wanted to redesign Paris to become a 15-minute city. And it's really sort of become more into – it's gotten more into the zeitgeist, into like the popular understanding as opposed to just being this urban planning concept. Um, and of course, this also coupled with COVID and all the lockdowns and everything else. And so um, as is our want, we have – 
kind of turned it into a conspiracy theory um, that, you know, 15 minute cities are going to be used as a sort of authoritarian mechanism for keeping people in certain zones of their city, right? Like you're going to have your jobs and your groceries and your haircut, you know, barbershops and culture and all this stuff in your 15 minute zone. And you're going to be, that's where you're going to, you know, basically live out your life, which is, which is a bit nutty for me. Um, so, so one angle that I'd like to talk about is what, what is a 15 minute city actually mean? And, and how can we sort of allay concerns about it? Because really it's not super revolutionary. And in fact, in most big cities, especially those that are walkable, like you, you already have a 15 minute city, right? <laughs> but, uh, but second, there is so we're going to link to it. There's a a, a really good critique of the concept from uh, Elaine Berteau, who is a uh, an urban economist. He worked for the uh, World Bank for ever, and he uh, he wrote a really good book called Order Without Design, which is basically urban economics for city planners, so that we can kind of understand how economics and markets shape the way that cities develop even though we try to control it right through land use planning and, 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 and things like that. Um, and so he has a really interesting critique of it that basically just says like the market's going to work the way that it's going to work. Right. And so you, you can't, you can't hope to have every need for a resident located within a certain small yeah. portion of the city, like right close to them, because that's going to distort how your city functions as an actual labor market and how regions function as a labor market. So, so one thing to note, if any of you listening is, is interested in the urban village concept or the 15 minute cities concept, and this is something that you're talking through and, and, and kind of wanting to put into your planning documents, don't talk about jobs as a part of your 15 minute city, because it doesn't work just from an economic standpoint. Right. There's absolutely nothing wrong in my mind as someone who lives in a place where I have a 15 minute driving city. Um, you know, like I, I can get most of the things I need, but I have to drive 15 minutes. Right. I would love to live in a place where I could walk 15 minutes. That's about three quarters yeah. of a mile. You know, if I could walk to get most of my basic needs, that'd be amazing. But I, I don't live in that that kind of area. But we're never going to be able to get jobs to be a part of that. So so don't ex- don't overextend with your your sort of planning uh processes and your utopian vision for for your urban villages you just have to realize that people are still going to have to commute yeah uh, in order for your labor market to function effectively but the other question i have is or the other thing that, that i am interested in and possibly exploring a little bit with you patrick is is how to address the conspiracy side if you're uh, a city planner or city manager you know just trying to build more walkable areas, more compact development, which we know is more fiscally productive because it requires less infrastructure. Um, you know, it it provides for higher value per acre from a both property tax, from a revenue stamp, from a sales tax standpoint. And so th- there are there are so many fiscal and social benefits that come from a building in a little bit more of a compact way. And this is a this is a concept that we're starting to really kind of see expand. Uh, into city planning, into the public consciousness. So how do we address the conspiracy side of it, you know, as public servants? So those are kind of the two aspects that I'm, I'm curious about your opinions on. So first off, I, I think the easiest way to address the conspiracy side of just government in general is to communicate 
more openly and honestly with people, right? It's to use data and to constantly communicate. And we do not, as public administrators, arm ourselves with data or information, nor are we willing in a lot of cases to put ourselves on the line to have conversations because we are fearful that our opinions may not align with those opinions of the community. We have lost within the career field uh, in city management the gumption to not be worried about getting terminated from your city, right? We, If you look at tenure in, in city managers lately, people are staying longer, which tells me we're not being as honest as we need to be. Just throwing that out there, right? Um, what made me a great city manager... <laughs> Hold on a second. So, So you're saying... Longevity is a sign of not doing longevity job or, or not doing it necessarily to the extent that maybe would be the most beneficial. So you remember like, as a as a like a baby or when you you had your kids, there are there's the it's a it's a it's a toy where there are shapes and there are there are wood blocks and they're different colors and every shape goes into the specific hole, right? And sometimes there's numbers aligned for it, but you know, you put the triangle in this hole and you put the square in this hole and you put the rectangle over here, right? And uh, you put the circle over here and like everything fits in there. I, I am a big believer that every city manager has a fit in a community, right? And you do not properly explore that fit if you get there. Now, there are great city managers like Tom Hart who were in Grand Prairie forever. And, and that was just a fit for him, right? But he was brutally honest in in how he did things from that city perspective. Uh, and it created a culture in that city that is different than than other places as well. But I think in, in some other communities that we have, we have a lack. Uh, we're so worried about keeping our jobs that we are not doing the professional, aggressive, truth-finding side of the business. Right, we are supposed to talk about the pros and the cons, not just the pros because they want to do it, and it's the cool shiny thing. We also have to talk about the cons, um, and we don't always do that well within our career field. So, yeah, I, I am kind of throwing it out there, like as a challenge to people that work in city management and city governments. We have to got to stop worrying about being terminated. It's it's that's why you have a contract. That's why you have a severance package. Um, you know, do the general thing for six months, hang out, make everybody happy. And after six months, make some changes, do some things that need to happen, uh, and be honest with your council members, uh, and, and who's there. And, and because of that, yeah, we've, we've seen longer tenure. Some of that's COVID to be fair. Uh, like nobody moved during COVID. Um, but we still have seen very little shifting within the city management field, uh, over the past couple of years. So that's, that's my first statement. We have to be more honest with people. Um, about the way things are going. The second side of this is we have to stop being focused on density, not density, and having the cultural arguments of single-family households, uh, track homes versus apartments versus condos versus you. Know, we have got to stop looking at everything based on I don't want those people in my backyard, right? Or I don't want that type of development in my community. Uh, and we ha- I actually gave a presentation on Wednesday where I was asked this question directly. And, you know, they said, well, how do we develop in a higher invest use and, and at, a, at a higher revenue per acre, but do it without building multifamily? And I said, first off, you, you may not be able to, right? But I said, you've got to stop thinking about it as the development type 
and start thinking about it as a more holistic, okay, I'm going to look at this 15 minute area, right? Let's say, uh, let's look at everything that would be 15 minute walkable in a community and let's create a development plan that gives you a significant revenue per acre number holistically in that 15 minute area, because there's going to be a need for different housing types that may not make you money. And this is what we talk about. Like when people use our software, like you have to be really careful not to just moneyball everything. There is a governmental purpose to build certain things at certain times that may not be profitable for you, right? But when we look at it a little bit more holistically, like in different spheres, so the 15 minute sphere, or maybe the thousand acre sphere, or, you know, the half mile, the mile, whatever we want to look at. When we look at that, we should we should look at it from a big picture standpoint and say, okay, we want this area to meet a certain revenue per acre instead of I have to have a $470,000 house, right? Like every house we build in this city has to be $470,000. Maybe we should look at that a little different and we should say every acre within this mile should meet a minimum per acre value that we're going to achieve, right? Um, And stop trying to like super regulate exactly what's going to occur and kind of intermix some of the city planning side with some of the free market conversation, right? And try to get to your goals, right? Say that, hey, the bus stop that I want to get to is I want a 15-minute walkable city, which, you know, look, we live in Texas. It's that's hard to do in suburban areas, right? I have a 15-minute drivable city that I'm in, right? Mm-hmm. I can get to my grocery store, my kid's school, my job, everything like that within 15 minutes of where I am. You know, but what I'm saying is, is we should establish the goal we want And then everybody's going to take a different path when they drive the bus to the bus stop, right? If that's the bus stop we want to stop at, you're going to, everybody's going to have to drive a different path there. And what, what I have seen in city government that is really just kind of, it it irks me because it's just such a simpleton approach to it is we're just not going to allow anything to be built unless it's $500,000 in residential households, which means we're, we're not going to allow any workforce development low-level workforce development because they have nowhere to live, right? Um, exactly. You know, we don't we don't look at a balanced approach to community. And, and the cities that are uh, that have thrived are extremely balanced in in the way that 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 they've gone about that and that they have thrived. So I just you know those are the couple of comments that I would make on the 15 minute city is it's not necessarily about whether I'm you know because I think the conspiracy theorists look at this chat and they're like, well, if you're going to build a 15 minute city, it means everything has to be dense. I can't have any homes. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it means that, yeah, you're taking away my car. And things yeah, like that. I mean, this is, I, it's, I, I, it really, it's, it's more about options than it is about, I mean, there are people, there are advocates for things like 15 minute cities who hate cars and would like to ban them entirely. Like, this is not yeah. going to happen. You should drop that. Right. But having more options, having the ability, like in suburban Texas, there are no places where you can walk anywhere. Right. right. So, yeah. Uh, and, and what we see is is a fiscal model that's not sustainable. So, so you know, you have you get a question: how can we how can we um, do these things without apartments or multifamily? Well, let's just if that's our constraint, um, you have two options: you can build big lots with really expensive houses, mm-hmm. or you can build smaller lots with more houses, more single family houses, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Are the problem that we have here in Texas, especially, uh, but really in America, is out, outside of major cities and urban centers, is that our view is that our options are single family houses on quarter acre or bigger lots or 
400 unit apartment complexes. Mm-hmm. Like there is a vast swath of differences in term in terms of density and development style in between those two things. I, I want to bring up an example and and I, I hate to bring up California as an example, but hey, we see you, California. I just took a long visit there. Um like went to Coronado, stayed in Coronado. Anybody who's been to Coronado, California, uh, it's kind of an island across from San Diego. But it is a very 15-minute walkable, bikeable area that has a mix of all different types of residential uses and a huge mix of commercial, local commercial uses, restaurants, uh, shops, uh, breakfast spots, all, all, all the above, right? Clothing stores. Uh, and you, you basically could buy everything you need to buy within a 15-minute walk um, to, to kind of live and thrive and work and all that type of stuff. So uh, it's expensive. So it's kind of a bad example for from that standpoint because everything is pricey, but that's just California in general. Like you can't live anywhere in California for cheap. Um, but you know, I I don't think we do a really good job of framing the conversation in Texas. I mean, you said it. It's like we're either gonna build a DR Horton track home community or we're gonna build a 400 unit apartment complex. Like in in the minds of our uh residents. Or the conspiracy theorist, we are not educating them on how we could actually do more from a development standpoint, right? Um, go back to Northwestern Hills. Talked about Paulette Hartman earlier. What they've done in hometown in Northwestern Hills is a great mix, right? Got uh, city facilities in the middle, library, elementary school, high schools walkable, uh, and then housing uh, a housing mix that is impeccable from uh, you know all the way from a mixed use multifamily with commercial on the first floor to uh, single family homes on a little bit larger lot to patio home style lot uh, to over 65 assisted living facilities on the edge as well. So there's just a, a multitude of mix and generational mix and those type of things that have been done in that development and master planned out. And if you looked at that over the 15 minute walkable, you would basically get everything you need in in that development uh, to to fit. And so I just don't think we do a good job of explaining the mix of development styles because it's complicated, right? It's not super simple, but it's complicated. And we just really need to kind of take a little bit more of a 30,000 foot look and say, okay, hey, um, we're going to do this development. And yes, we're going to take this multifamily through. Let me show you the rest of the development plan though. Like, don't look at this just by this one project. Look at everything in a development plan and what's going to develop. So, uh, and sometimes that means you have to build the most politically palatable part first, right? But guess what that also means is that you can build smaller things. Yeah. Right. Like if you don't have any multifamily in your city, which we didn't uh, in Hudson Oaks, going from nothing to a huge multifamily development is a big step. Yeah. And we've become accustomed to you know, nothing is going to change in my neighborhood. So if you can shift up a little bit, I don't think it's going to, like, it may still be scary for the people who live there and you may still get pushback, but I think that you would see less concern as you go, right? Like that first say duplex or quadplex or like small six unit apartment complex Mm -hmm. that's sort of woven into the fabric of the neighborhood instead of this massive development. The more I think that you do some of that small scale stuff, not only are you going to be increasing the increase in the value per acre and the density, um, 
and reducing infrastructure per person, all those kinds of fiscally sustainable things. But you're also going to slowly start to erode that fear that you know, we're going to totally change the, the character of our neighborhoods, right? That's what you hear all the time. Mm-hmm. We can't do this because our neighborhood character is important. Just small steps can help sort of change the narrative a little bit and build trust over time. The course is actually not that, not as devastating as it may seem. The opposite is today. Yeah, absolutely. The opposite is true as well. Like you, you go and you, you go and you build a development that's too large, right? You get away from the incremental development style and you tell the community, oh, we're not going to have an increase in crime. This isn't going to impact crime or this isn't going to impact city services or whatnot. And so then you go build a facility that's got 800 units in it. Right. And you you lack the ability to kind of control how it develops as much. And then you do have an uptick. Right. It's very difficult to make adjustments when you just threw all 800 residential units on the ground. Right. So if you could start smaller or plan out better. That that's the other side. I mean, we talk about that uh, multifamily residential we built in in Hudson Oaks, which, you know, by the way, just sold to a REIT for a gob of money. Uh, because it's a great project and it filled to 97% occupancy within like four months. But we worked on that with the public's input for like three or four years. You know, we didn't just turn around and have a developer walk in the room and say, hey, we want to build this multifamily concept here and then just shove it through the process. We actually used the process to go get the developer. And we said, look, we need to put multifamily on the ground. We have some workforce issues. We have some employers that are major players in our community that need workforce uh, housing that is, you know, less expensive than the one acre half million dollar homes that we we were building at the time. You know, those are now one acre million dollar homes, by the way. But um, and so we've got to do some stuff for the workforce side. And so we went Which to tells the, you a lot, right? Yeah, absolutely. And how yeah, in within a 10 year span to see that kind of value increase. Yeah, not only that, you have but areas to me, that's not a, that's not always a sign of a healthy <laughs> fiscal environment. Uh, abs- right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh what's amazing to me is you have areas that were developed in the 70s and 80s in this community that uh people are going in and buying for, you know, half million dollars and throwing $300,000 into the home to fully update it, right? And and do some ma- massive remodeling because the lots are nice and the trees are pretty and you know, you can't really buy that other places. And so I I get it. Um but my point is is that a lot when we're going through processes in cities, it's always a like we've become as 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 residents have become less trustful of us, we've become less trustful of the resident, and so we try to go through a process with as little wake as possible. Like the boat's coming in, we want to be slow, we want no wake. And my comment is is that we should be out ahead of that by years talking about what should develop in these areas and why and what the fiscal impacts are so that everybody's on board with where things are going to go. And so I think that's extremely important to do. And I think it's what we did on that development. And that's why it's there. And that's why it went there without us getting fired, right? On the other, on the other side of it. So, because when I first started in that city, I was told we will never build multifamily development and if you do, you will not work here. If you try to bring it to us, we will fire you. That's what I was told. And then we went to, okay, hey, we have this employer that brings us a ton of revenue and has great employees. And some of them are young and some of them make a lot of money. But this employer for the younger workforce really needs to be able to recruit workforce out here and then live within a 15-minute drive of where they live. We'd really like to see you guys do something for that. And we spent three years developing that process. And 
got it done. And in fact, that employer actually invested in the project, right? They were like a 10% investor in the project because they believed in it. And we got it off the ground. And that whole development community made a lot of money and they built it to a specification that most multifamily developers would not agree to. Right. I, I, I can't remember the number we talked to. It's been a while, but I think we talked to like 11 different development groups about, At least 10, yeah. about, Hey, this is what we want to build. And it's got to be this way. And they all said, you're in the middle of nowhere, you know, in exoburb area. And we're not going to put a restaurant and a Pilates studio and a gym on the first floor of this stuff. And we said, okay, great. We don't want you. We'll wait for the next guy. And eventually we found the developer who did it. And those guys who took that risk and did what they needed to do made a lot of money. Yeah, um, and the cool thing about that is that it's integrated into the development area, right? Right. So, like, it's not just siloed off for the people who live there. It's the whole community can use it. And we didn't overdo the commercial. I think where a lot of cities go wrong on that too is they try to put commercial on every first floor of every building and make it work. And we actually went and looked at it from a fiscal analysis standpoint and said we're only going to uh, put in as much commercial that can be supported by the development itself, right? So if you got a restaurant down there, like you should be able to fill your evenings with people who live in that area, right? Like a nice bar and grill, which is basically what went in there. Um, and they make a great old fashioned, by the way. Um, the, you know, that is really supported by the people who are there. The Pilates studio that's there is full of people who live in that area, right? So it's just kind of like, you know, that back to that 15 minute conversation, you have to develop in a manner that allows you to uh, to not overdo it. And a lot of times when it comes to retail, the heroin of city government, that's what I call it. When it comes to retail, we keep shooting up the heroin as much as we possibly can and to the point of no return where everything starts to decline. And I can give you city after city after city that yeah. 30 years ago did that. And now they've had declining revenues for 10 straight years in sales tax. Yeah. Well, if... If it's first of all, if it's not balanced, like yeah. too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Absolutely. If it's not a balanced development pattern, then when people move out, you get to that first life cycle of these big box stores, they're gonna leave and follow the people, yeah. right? So like you have to balance the growth. And secondly, just adding more retail, I know we call it economic development, it's not really developing your economy, nope. right? There's more to economic growth than just more retail sales. So you have to have a balanced approach. And what ends up happening with that, if you have a balanced approach and you're able to do things on a smaller scale incrementally to see what works and what doesn't work without like this moonshot yep. um, that could fail and fail catastrophically, then what you end up with is a 15-minute city. Yes. <laughs> you, know? Correct. you end up with places where people can access what they need and it's close by. And, and it, with stable so economies like and stable cutting, property values and stable yeah. crime rates. And I mean, all so, of those so you things. You get where you're going yeah. without having to have sort of this conversation because you got buy-in and because you did it slowly and incrementally and you saw what worked and what didn't work and things like that. So, But the conspiracy yeah, theorists look think, at this yeah. like it's the Pace Picani sauce commercial, right? Like New York City. New York City. Yeah, like California, my Texas. Correct. And, and the reality is, is that Texas can do this in its own way, right? It can do yeah. it, it. And like I said, it's, you know, 15 minute walkable may not be workable everywhere, right? Um, but we should be able to legitimately get to most things in stable communities within a 15 minute drive or a 10 minute drive. Yeah. Right. But here's the truth. If you look at places like 
downtown Taylor and Marfa, like those are 15 minute cities out like Marfa in particular. It's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And it has this like old downtown area. It's surrounded by a residential and it has some mixed use. And like you can get where you need to go in short order, in many cases without driving. Like that's just how we used to build. So like, I don't know that it needs this sort of marketing slogan, right? That's going to be divisive, but Anyway, it's interesting uh, to talk about because I think it touches on a lot of different things. Uh, Pat, I've got to call it quits uh, because my daughter is headed to a dance competition and she's been sitting in the car waiting to leave for about 10 minutes. So nice. i got to go say bye to her. Uh, uh, have a good trip next week. I'm going to be out at the end of the week. So, um, you know, spring break, hopefully if anyone who's listening is going somewhere, hopefully uh, you'll be safe, safe travels, have fun. And, and we'll catch up with you when we get back. Awesome. See you guys later.